2: Hey, Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. So this is going to be a repeat episode, but we wanted to give you a little bit of an introduction to it. This is uh, from about a year ago when Robert and I did an episode on the science of necrophilia. And I'm going to just throw it out there. This is one of my favorite episodes that we've ever recorded.
1: Yeah, this one was a, a really fun topic to research. Uh, I thought that the episode came together perfectly and we, we, were, we were able to demystify the topic. Take something that is often seen as just, you know... Utterly repellent, you, you just, you don't even want to look closer. Maybe you, maybe you do, but in a gruesome car accident. Yeah. Uh, but, but when you strip away the human complexities, the, the actual science is really fascinating as well.
2: Yeah. And I just, you know, want to know, we talk about this up front in the episode, I believe, but th- don't, don't think that this is going to be some like gross out fest or anything like that. Right. We approach this the way we do all of our other episodes with a lot of research and, uh, with a, a modicum of dignity, I guess, is what I would say. <laughs>
1: The same monicum of dignity that we uh, we we dust off for every episode. Yeah, 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 like organic food. Yeah, exactly. So without further ado, uh, let's jump into it. All right, so we're going to start off by just dis- by discussing necrophilia in in the animal kingdom. I mean, it generally. That's the way it goes with these things. We can talk about a simpler model of what's going on with the animals before we dare throw in the the complications of uh, the human mind and
2: human culture. And what I was the most shocked about with this as we did the research was how prevalent it is. Yeah. I mean, we've got at least, what, like five or six examples of different animals uh, that practice necrophilia today. And I'm sure there are dozens more out there that have just not been cataloged. In fact, as we'll find with the Penguin, it was, and then that research was redacted, basically, for, yeah, just, for culture
1: reasons. Yeah, it was just too shocking to share. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but essentially, you could sum it all up in a bumper sticker, like necrophilia happens. And, yes. and the more you, you just sort of acclimatize to that reality, the uh, the easier going everything else is, that it's not something that is uh, not necessarily an act that is just a, a defilement before the gods as much as a thing that occurs in the natural order of things, often as an accident, but accidents happen, and uh, and then human culture just makes it a little more complicated.
2: You know what just occurred to me, Robert, is that? that we're assuming that our audience automatically knows what necrophilia is. That's true, yeah. So maybe we should just, I mean throw out a very basic definition, which is, in fact, and this was one of the things that surprised me doing the research, in the case of necrophilia, it is not the act of having sex with a dead body, with Mm -hmm. a corpse, it is the desire to. Right, yeah, just the desire to alone, the
1: the fantasy of necrophilia is enough to classify one as a necrophiliac. Yeah. Um, And the term itself is actually pretty new. Necrophilia uh, is an entirely 19th century term. Hmm but of course the practice it describes uh, the sexual abuse
2: of corpses yeah. is quite ancient. We have uh, myths going back as far as human memory probably. Yeah. yeah. Because it you
1: know it gets down to a, a lot of the key problems of dealing with death. Um, but of course you have to sort of define what is sex too before we right exactly. Because of course human intercourse is uh, essentially the physical act that allows the exchange of genetic information to uh, mix everything
2: around and create a new organism as offspring, right? Yeah, and that's what makes our first example in sort of the quote-unquote animal world interesting because it's so alien to how we understand intercourse. It almost seems like it wouldn't be categorized as necrophilia, technically, but it's referred to as such in the literature. Right, and I'm sure in the science headlines, I didn't, I mean, maybe not yet, but it's just waiting for the right
1: paper to come out, Mm -hmm. and then all the the various science blogs will really run with the headline that will include the phrase, bacterial necrophilia. Yeah. Um, Of course, bacteria, they don't actually need to engage in intercourse in order to reproduce. Uh, instead, they uh, they tend to swallow up DNA from other bacteria just as they move around, and they'll even absorb it from dead bacterial cells. They exchange new DNA fragments uh, from the dead with their own, and then by shuffling all this around, they're essentially mating with the dead uh, in a way that most higher creatures
2: fail to achieve. Yeah, the stuff that I read... About this in particular, I'm going to be honest, was so dense that I had a hard time understanding it. It seems like it's its own very special niche field uh, that that has its own language uh, and that I don't know necessarily that they're using necrophile or necrophilia sort of in the same way that we understand it when we're applying it, certainly to human beings, but mm-hmm. also to other animals. But it is how it is described in the literature. Yeah, it is. A genetic exchange between the living and the dead.
1: Yep. Um, so yeah, it, it's almost its own thing because it doesn't really match up with most of the models of uh, of biological higher organism necrophilia.
2: But it's important to include yeah. here, especially. I think it's a it's perfect to include at the top. But if you want to move on, we yeah. can get into. What what Robert has coined here as the duck of death, and
1: I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this one from the Ig Nobel Prizes, uh, particularly the uh, the Ig Nobel Prize for Biology in 2003. Now, just to rehash uh, the Ig Nobel Prizes, this comes out these come out every year. Yeah, this and, was
2: new to me, and you explained it to me before the podcast.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's easy to to mistake it for like a mockery, mm-hmm. but it's really a celebration of of weird science papers and some you know science papers that study. The strange, or just the just the 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 weird minutiae that often gets you know, and, and is inherently picked up in scientific literature as yeah. as science expands like a slime mold through the labyrinth of <laughs> uh, of existence. Yeah, uh, you know, you're going to pick up some weird topics, and they celebrate these topics. And so, the 2003 award went to um, uh, Kees Moliker, um, who's a Dutch writer and curator of the Natural uh, History Museum in Rotterdam, uh, and he. Well, he won this paper for his uh, his recorded uh, sci- his first scientifically recorded case of homosexual necrophilia in the mallard
2: duck. Yeah, and before we get into the details here, there's I want to back up a second because one of the things that I read was that apparently mallards in the Netherlands are particularly known for what are called attempted rape flights, Okay. and that this isn't necessarily. From, from what I was reading, it's not necessarily heterosexual or homosexual. It's just more like these ducks just go for it mm-hmm. while they're flying. And it's somewhat regardless of gender, but one in ten of these attempted rape flights is homosexual and that it's two male ducks. Uh, and that basically what we're looking at here in this example from Molliker is that one of the ducks died mid-flight either from injuries, Due to their struggle, or maybe it ran into something and the other duck just landed and and kept going. It's, I mean, it's hard not, I laughed a little bit, so it's, it's hard not oh, to laugh. I, You know what? I think it's okay for you to laugh. I think it's okay for the people listening to laugh. <laughs> you, you gotta have a little bit of, uh, of ga- literal gallows humor <laughs> with, yeah. with this uh, in order to get through it. Yeah, I mean, they are just ducks in this case. Doing what ducks do to each other. Yeah, and as we're gonna find too, you know, uh, this kind of, uh, sexual behavior is fairly common in a lot of animals. Uh, birds especially, but th- yeah, these ducks, um, it seems like, like, I, I didn't get the impression because I read, uh, the actual account from Mullicker. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't know that he knew how the-, the first duck died. It sounded like maybe it crashed into something. Yeah. But basically there was this, this duck corpse and he saw the second duck mount it and begin to peck at it and proceed for quite some time. I mean, he recorded pretty precisely how long everything lasted. And I believe it was like, I don't have it in the notes here, but I want to say it was like 45 or 75 minutes or something (laughs) like that. So it wasn't like this duck didn't realize what was happening. Then realized it's, you know, it's a partner was dead and stopped it really, you know, made a habit of it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the reasons that the um, the paper won the Egg
1: Nobel Prize and was so, uh, everyone enjoyed it so much, is that it is this meticulous look at this horrible thing that, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, most people might want to turn their
2: eyes away from. Well, that's the thing about it, right, is that Mulliker sat there and watched <laughs> this for, let's say, 75 minutes, and I'm assuming with like a pad of paper and just wrote it all down and he actually from what i was reading it was after that after the second i believe that this there were two instances of it with the with the same deceased duck uh he kind of shooed away the other bird and finally took the the corpse of the mallard and um you know brought it inside and that other duck <coughs> hung around kind of making noises at him <laughs> for a while afterwards so it's an interesting case uh, I would not be the person who would be uh, so in- intent upon, you know, cataloging this that I would be able to hang out there for seventy five minutes. But yeah, you know. it's an example of the the unflinching gaze of
1: science. Mm-hmm. Now, our next case, though, is is more of an example of the the definitely the flinch. This guy gaze flinched science. Yeah, George Murray Levick. Yeah, he was the medical officer on uh, Captain Scott's Terra Nova expedition to the South Pole in nineteen ten and uh, he recorded the sexual activity of the adélie penguins uh in in detail and he was he was somewhat shocked um by much of what he saw and a lot of this really has to do with with him falling into the trap of seeing penguins as little people you know they yeah. were little people in tuxedos instead of just
2: bipedal birds um, do you know what this movie do you know what this uh, article made me think of? Have you ever there? seen that movie uh, March of the Penguins narrated by Morgan Freeman? I have not seen any of the various penguin related movies that have come out. I uh, I saw it gosh, must have been 11 years ago now or something mm-hmm. like that whenever it first came out. I saw it in the theater. It's the one where they surf, right? No, no, no. This is like a documentary. Oh, okay. This isn't the the CGI. <laughs> happy I think you're thinking of Happy Feet. Ah, but that <laughs> came from uh what's his name? Director of Mad Max, so. Oh, oh yeah, that's yeah. right. George Miller. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, anyway, For those of you out there who have seen March of the Penguins, and I think there is a whole kind of genre of documentary film about penguins, one of the things that bothered me about that movie at the time is how much it personified the penguins. Mm -hmm. And clearly, from reading this, like Levick, they must have left some of the more animalistic behaviors of penguins out of the cut. So that it fit the sort of humanized narrative that they established as Morgan Freeman read to us, you know, over the over this very nice footage of penguins. Yeah, there was an article that came out uh,
1: on the BBC in uh, 2012 titled "Depraved Sex Acts by Penguins Shock Polar Explorer," and uh, it's it's a wonderful little read. I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. But uh, uh, there's a quote there. Um, they they interviewed. Uh, Douglas Russell, who's curator of eggs and nests at the Natural History Museum. And uh, he says, what is happening here is not in any way uh, analogous to necrophilia in the human context. It is the male seeing the positioning that is causing them to have a sexual reaction. They are not distinguishing between live females who are awaiting Congress in the colony and dead penguins from the previous year, which just happened to be in the same position. And so... Um, as the the article lays out, uh, George George Murray Levick, in writing about these penguins, was so shocked yeah. that the, the 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 stuff about necrophilia he essentially redacted. Uh, only some of his peers and the, the individuals that they shared it with uh, were able to read the full uh, unedited account of uh, penguin atrocities.
2: Yeah, and in fact, like the it, it goes beyond just the the necrophilia too. I believe these penguins similar to the Mallards, you know, sort of engage in, in like a, a habitualized gang rape is what it yeah. sounded like. Cause there's lots of, of these male penguins surrounding female penguins and what ends up happening in these situations, situations is they're so brutal that they accidentally killed the partner. Yeah.
1: I mean, really it should come as no surprise, right? That in a brutal environment, mm-hmm. uh, creatures will behave brutally in order to survive. Um, but, which leads uh, us to H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, this was a. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I, when I was reading this, mm-hmm. I started uh, thinking about um, "At the Mountains of Madness," his yeah. uh, 1931 novella, uh, which I, I just uh, reread sometime in the last couple of years, so I get yeah. it kind of fresh.
2: It's but, great. That's one of my favorite Lovecraft pieces. It's a little bit longer than his other ones, but yeah, yeah, one of his
1: later works, definitely, definitely science fiction. It's mm-hmm. it's a, a, a work that he conducted a lot of scientific research for. He was Lovecraft was a guy who, if you were around today, you know, he would be hitting all the science blogs. He would be reading, uh, some of the <laughs> journals. He'd, he'd have a yeah. subscription to, to several of the magazines. He'd probably have a podcast at How Stuff Works. Pro- I would hope so. <laughs> uh, and, uh, he, um but he makes several men- mentions of the penguin, like numerous mentions of penguins, often describing them as grotesque penguins. Yeah. And, uh, he probably would have, uh, have read about, uh, about uh, about Levick's thoughts on the penguins. I mean, probably not the unedited uh, content, but he certainly makes reference to uh, Captain Scott's uh, Terra Nova expedition in the story.
2: Yeah, and I, if I remember correctly in that story, those penguins were somewhat gigantic, right? There was yeah. something to do with them they were sort of like prehistoric holdover penguins. And we know, I believe from what I've I've read in other uh, research instances, that that's a thing that mm-hmm. that penguins did used to be considerably larger than they are now.
1: Yeah, I, I almost feel like they come off more repellent in that story than like the shoggoths. So. Oh yeah, they're
2: they're they're terrifying. <laughs> um so let's move on to reptiles. Yeah, so we've got a bunch of examples of of uh, reptiles in action performing necrophilia. The, one of the first ones that I found was uh, from an article called, it was published this year, uh, called Corpse Bride Irresistible, A Dead Female Tegu Lizard Courted by Males for Two Days at an Urban Park in Southeastern Brazil. It's very specific, that yeah, title. I love the pull quote on this one uh, from a <laughs> zoologist who observed uh, this act and process. Yeah, it's very similar to the to the mallard duck. Yeah. This guy just sat there and watched he it. He said, quote, I felt a sense of wonder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll go through this and then uh, we can hit upon some of the other lizards. He provided a very detailed account of ha- what happened. Here with this tegu lizard, apparently it mounted a recently dead female. Mm-hmm. It gained a hold by biting the skin of her neck and attempting to mate with her. The same male just kept biting the neck and rubbing its left hind limbs on her body. And then this uh, basically was like I think a two-day dead female, so it wasn't you know as a, it wasn't uh, similar to the mallard case where it had like just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, then another smaller male came by and also held the neck of it. And they, they it seems to be, you know, biting seems to be a major part of tegu lizard uh, sex practice because they just were opening their jaws, uh, kind of biting and putting their mouths around the whole head of this animal. Uh, and then after a while, it, it ceased its attempts. And he, this is exactly from his uh, his figure uh, description: the male tongue flicked the female's head and scratched her hind bodies with the right hind limb. So there you have it. Mm-hmm. Necrophilia Between Tegu Lizards. I, I love, uh, though, about this case...
1: One of the things I love about this case is that uh, the the analysis of what's happening here goes deeper than just, oh, it's a stupid animal and it made a stupid mm-hmm. mistake and tried to mate with something that it cannot mate with. They, um, they point out that, first of all, lizards, of course, cold-blooded creatures. So right. it's not... Uh so, so the, the the creature that it's attempting to have sex with, though dead, uh, you know, it's it's ambient body heat. Uh it's body heat is essentially going to be that of the ambient air. And uh pheromones are still gonna be in play, uh mm-hmm. even though it's dead. So there are, there are enough signals saying, Yes, I'm alive right. for the uh you know the dominating male to then come in and try and do its thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's an important thing to distinguish here as well. Too is like consider that these animals are relying on senses that are very different than ours yeah. to distinguish what's what's available and what's alive.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking it's le- probably less like um, you know if if a human were to go to a bar and try to chat up someone who's just a corpse right. at the bar, just propped up. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's more like if you're driving down the interstate and you see a sign for a gas station and you pull in to get gas, it said gas station. You know, pull the car up, actually get out to fill up, and then realize that the place is closed. Exactly. Like the existing signs, the major signs that we care about in this rather simplistic, uh, ordeal are saying, yes, we're open for business, uh, when in, in effect, the lizard is
2: dead. It's possible this Tegu lizard didn't even realize it at all. Yeah. You know, even, even afterwards. It sounded like the same with the mallard. Mm-hmm. We've also got this with an, an, another reptile, the Amazonian frog. I'm gonna have <laughs> trouble pronouncing this Latin name. Ryanella proboscidea. Ah, yes, and this
1: one is fabulous uh, because, uh, as a, a 2013 uh, study uh, reveals, this is functional necrophilia. Right. This is something that, for pretty much every other organism um, out there, it's an impossibility because necrophilia. We've often discussed this. We've discussed it so far mm-hmm. uh, in lizards and in, in birds it's a mistake that cannot possibly work but in this frog in uh, proboscidia here our proboscidia uh, we
2: actually see reproduction occurring through necrophilia right so they extract eggs from their dead sexual partners right mm-hmm. and and then they fertilize them they right. don't fertilize them and then extract them right this is uh, so what how this happens and it's not uh, not to say they primarily
1: or only uh, reproduce through next right yeah but we it's, it's that. on the table as mm-hmm. a vi- as, a, as, a, as a viable option so the males form a big uh, mating ball that make a, you know consist of uh, you know dozens of frogs and they're all just ready to go and then along comes a female and they essentially all begin fighting on top of her for the rights to mate with her right and in some of the cases she ends up drowning at the bottom of this uh, this mating ball, mm. um, you know. And so it ends up with you end up with cases where um, researchers, particularly uh, in this case, uh, 2013, uh, Thiago Izzo from uh, Brazil's National Institute of Amazonian Research, uh, he's analyzing the results of this breeding. He right. finds he's yeah, he's counting them, like 100 males to 20 dead females in one. Uh, in another one, 50 males and five dead females. Yeah. But then when he starts dissecting the females, there are no eggs. So he's trying to figure out, well, where did the eggs go? How did this, what could have possibly happened? Mm-hmm. And then he observed uh, the act itself.
2: Yeah, and so, like, from what I had read, that there's, uh, this is unique, I believe, to this particular kind of frog. Yeah. But that, uh, one of the, one of the articles that I read on this, which was, uh, called Necrophiliac Behavior in the Kururu Toad, which mm-hmm. is a different kind of toad, mm-hmm. but it also references this instance. It says that it's been documented that in all groups of terrestrial tetrapods that this kind of uh, necrophilia happens and that the basically scientists just account for it as a lack of proper recognition by males during reproductive season. So in, in this case with the proboscidea, mm-hmm. it sounds like they do recognize it though and they say, okay, we've got to take these eggs so that, you know, something actually happens with it.
1: Yeah, or at least they've, um, they've reached the point in their evolution to where it still works. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's been selected. Um, because yeah what happens is the males squeeze the dead female's body the eggs pop out the male quickly fertilizes the eggs and then they eventually develop into healthy embryos
2: so like where do they where do they put these eggs while they're fertilizing they just have like a storage area
1: <laughs> i i got the impression from uh, from reading the paper that they just they kind
2: of pop out and it's just done the deed is done right there oh yeah. okay so it's just like the egg is next to the corpse of the female frog right yeah. okay okay I guess I was imagining something a little bit more fantastic where these like hundreds they, of they spirited them away. Yeah, these well, frogs I, are bringing these these uh these eggs back to their lair. I believe Izio
1: did um he did observe like in when at least one of the cases the frog moving the body to a location to okay. where he he would be able to have his way with it undisturbed by the by uh, other fro- other male frogs. Oh, all right. Yeah. But um but the, yeah the fascinating thing here is that it's believed that this provides a reproductive advantage to both the desperate outnumbered male who can't get his hands on a live mate as well as the dead female because hmm. you know even in her case she's died through this rather brutal breeding process yeah. but she's still going to be able to fulfill the, the the genetic mission.
2: Yeah that is the fascinating part and certainly uh it seems like at least in all the examples that we have here of animals that that, uh, reproduction is still the goal, mm-hmm. right? That, like, that's what seems to be going on in the heads of these mallards or these frogs or tengu lizards or penguins or whatever. And it makes me wonder too, like I said at the top, I'm sure there are many other instances of other animals in the wild that have done this and humans have probably already documented it, but mm-hmm. like our uh, friend with the the penguins, they maybe don't want to get that research. Uh, that's that's not the first paper they're going to submit for publication. Right, right. Yeah, I, I get the
1: impression that it's it's kind of an understudied area of human behavior, but but certainly there's or some animal behavior. Oh rather. yes, yeah, yeah. Certainly an understudied area of uh, of animal behavior, but but
2: there's some there's some interesting work there nonetheless. So I believe that this frog is a perfect uh, way for us to transition into human necrophiles. Um,
1: now, before we get into anything. Too uh, disturbing, though. Um, we should remind you that, uh, like, basically, human necrophilia can be achieved in a way that is far less ethically sketchy and horrendous right. and, you know, an, an affront to the gods, et cetera. And that is, of course, in the form of posthumous sperm retrieval and posthumous egg retrieval. Right. Which um, is
2: similar to the frogs that we were just talking yeah, about.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, it's ba- like, basically, it's the frog scenario carried out, um, you know, far less brutally uh, right. in human culture. Uh, it, it, the same thing that the frog has been it has evolved to to deal with human technology allows us to to do the same thing to remove uh, viable sperm or egg from a brain dead or even recently de- deceased individual and then utilize it uh, uh, in reproduction in uh, in a healthy body.
2: yeah, I had never heard of this before this before researching this episode, but it seems perfectly plausible to me and I could sort of understand the motivation for some people as well.
1: Yeah, it's not, you know, it's not it's almost a a disservice to call it necro to refer to it all as necrophilia because right. it's it's certainly not, you know, an abuse of a body. It's there are a lot of, there are some ethical concerns and you know most of them concern legality and consent of the individual mm-hmm. whose uh, reproductive material is, is being taken. But um but at, at at heart though, it is a reproductive act occurring between a living individual and a dead individual, almost like when going back to that bacteria, right? Yeah, very it's, similar. It's very right? much in line with the bacterial model that we discussed earlier. Yeah, um, and we've had this technology uh, for a little bit. Um, you know, we've, we've been carrying out uh, posthumous sperm retrieval uh, for a while, and in 2011, we actually saw the um, the the first uh, uh, use of, uh, of of effective uh, posthumous egg retrieval. Uh, there's a paper. With a kind of horrible title um, that came out uh, 2012, yeah. Mich- Michigan State Law Review, "Dying to Be Mommy," using intentional parenthood as a proxy
2: for consent in posthumous egg retrieval case. Mm. Yeah, that definitely sounds like uh, something that I've noticed. That's a that's a law article too, Michigan mm-hmm. State Law Review. It sounds like a case of using a title to, um, to kind of kind of make it a little bit more sexy, so it's uh, yeah. more attractive to the publishers. Yeah, it was it.
1: It feels a little weird, but uh, but I mean, at heart, it's uh, I think it's a very sensible, um, a very sensible procedure to carry out, provided you know sure. consent is is clear and established. You know, you have a sudden death that occurs between uh, two people who who want to uh, to have offspring, and here is a scientific way of achieving that.
2: And so. it sounds like this article was specifically about. Uh, an, an example in Israel yes. where magistrates set a legal precedent for this, um for the harvesting and freezing of a posthumous uh, human being's eggs.
1: Yeah, and I know some of you are probably wondering, well how, how dead, uh, can the individual be. Well, I did find some stats on sperm retrieval from mm. a from a two thousand six paper uh t- uh titled a Posthumous sperm retrieval analysis of time interval to harvest sperm and uh this was published in the journal Human Reproduction. It said, quote, viable sperm is obtainable with psr that's posthumous sperm retrieval, well after the currently recommended 24-hour time interval. PSR should be considered up to 36 hours after death following appropriate evaluation. No no correlation was found between cause of death and chance for successful
2: sperm retrieval. So that's sperm in particular, but not 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 eggs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I wonder if there's a paper out there that's about the time limits on eggs as well.
1: Yeah, I wonder if it's... uh, if it's, a, if it's about the same or uh, mm. or maybe it's there's a little shorter. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. But, uh, if anybody out there knows, uh, please tell us. Yeah, yeah, we'll throw that information in there. Mm-hmm.
4: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is.
5: If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant.
0: IBM. Let's create. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us. To crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. Fifty dollars off now until Father's Day. Visit b a r t e s i a n dot com backslash father to get fifty off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Artesian premium cocktails on demand.
2: Um, so this seems like the moment for us to go down what probably most of you thought you were going to be hearing when you clicked on an episode that had necrophilia in the title. Which yeah, is, and we're going to call it classic necrophilia. Mm-hmm. Indeed, this is what you think of when you hear that word yeah and this is you know if you want to get off the train at this point this is your stop <laughs> because uh, it's all human necrophilia from here yeah on. this is where it gets a bit spooky but not as you know what I am going to qualify that not as not as uh, spooky or creepy as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I mean, especially once you crunch the examples
1: that we've gone through already, yeah. it kind of demystifies and you know de horrifies the situation a mm-hmm. bit. I
2: find, mm-hmm. and there is even some aspects of the human psychology that I can I don't relate to or identify with, but I can I can sympathize with with somebody, for instance, who uh, misses their dead loved one which yes. seems to be one of the examples. We'll get into that. Yeah. But I think what we should really start with is is this one paper that came out in 1987, which seems to be cited in all of the uh, research that's done on the psychology of necrophilia. It is called Sexual Attraction to Corpses, a Psychiatric Review of Necrophilia. It was written by Jonathan P. Rosman and Philip J. Resnick. Uh, and basically, these guys explored 122 cases of necrophilia, and they found, what was it, 88 of them were from world literature, and 34 were unpublished cases. Mm-hmm. What I want to know, and I, I actually downloaded the whole article. i got to um, go back through and look at the methodology. I don't think they explained it in there, though. Where where do you get these cases? It's not, they make it sound <laughs> like you just go to the library and you're like, uh, yes, I would like uh, all of the world literature cases on Necrophilia, please. Yeah, I, I don't recall seeing that specified in the paper either, but... Um but you know they they had a lot to chew on. Uh, they did. And they um they used it to basically create some categorizations some classifications of types of necrophilia, right? So sorry. we've got and they came up with three.
1: Mhm.
2: Well, they first of all there're two there's they're sort of a line in the sand that they draw initially
1: between genuine oh, yes. necrophilia and pseudonecrophilia. And mm-hmm. pseudonecrophilia is uh, you know this consists of, of transient attraction to human corpses, but it's not. But it would, with these individuals, with pseudo necrophiliacs, sex with a corpse is not the central part of their fantasies. Uh, they're yeah. primarily interested in living sexual partners, but uh, you know uh, they're <laughs> they're not averse to. Uh, to to going after something dead. This group includes uh, sadistic, opportunistic, and transitory cases of necrophilia.
2: And again, like let's distinguish here, necrophilia is the desire to have sex with a dead body, right. not the act of having sex with a dead body. Yeah. Some of these lead to that, obviously, but some of these necrophilics that they're referring to in the literature didn't act upon their fantasies.
1: Yeah, like I could see someone being tricked into being classified as a pseudo-necrophiliac, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, they they have a drink in them, and you, you're just talking to them and right, saying, just the Well, cat. would well, you, and under these circumstances, and then eventually they break and say, Well, I don't know, maybe, and then you're
2: And then all, all right, of a you're sudden you're in a 1989 study on necrophilia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they got them all. <laughs> so, okay. The first one is, I the first categorization that they came up with is, I think, what a lot of people think of when they hear the word necrophilia. But they categorize it as a type called necrophilic homicide. So what we're talking about here, this is sort of the Jeffrey Dahmer model right? of uh, an individual murders somebody in order to obtain a corpse for their necrophilic fantasies. And from from what I was reading about Dahmer, and I mean, that's a whole other uh, rabbit hole that we could go down oh, for yeah. another episode. And I think Ted Bundy also partook in this. Mm-hmm. But the, the idea was that those... Those men could not uh, feel sexual pleasure unless the part, the, their quote unquote partner. It's a terrible word for it in this situation. Was was dead. Yeah, right? or at least like
1: dehumanized in a yeah, in a, to a significant degree. Because I believe Dahmer tried to create essentially zombies out of individuals by drilling into their their skull. Oh, okay, but but it kind of comes down to the same thing. They they needed a person devoid of will. Mm -hmm. And uh, the easiest way to achieve that is, of course, to kill the individual.
2: Yeah, uh, the key here seems to be that what these uh, people are looking for is a partner who is, quote, and this is from the text, unresisting and unrejecting. So I don't know necessarily that it's like, it, maybe it is in some cases that the the act of killing sort of sexualizes the situation. Mm-hmm. But what they're looking for is somebody who won't reject them and somebody who isn't going to resist them, right? Yeah. And we'll break
1: down more on the the motives uh, for all these cases Yeah,
2: and one fact that I wanted to throw out there that wasn't in these studies, but was uh, another study came out was uh, this woman, Michelle Stein, from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. Mm -hmm. She reviewed 211 sexual homicides, and she found that only 8% of those involved necrophilia. So when we're talking about... You know, sexual deviancy, sexual crime, and necrophilia—it's actually quite rare. I mean, first of all, these these uh, deviant situations are rare. That's why we call them deviant. Right. But then also that within that structure, the the um, actual act of sex with a dead body is fairly rare as well within within these uh, criminal acts.
1: Yeah, I mean, you almost can imagine the Venn diagram, right, of the of the. the the psychotic murder or, or relentless murder mm-hmm. and the type of individual who would want uh, uh, sexual contact with a dead body.
2: Yeah, it seems as such. And I think that, yeah, the Venn diagram sliver is probably fairly small. So don't listen to this episode and think, oh, my God, they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's not the case, at least from what the research says. Now, the next uh, classification under uh, genuine
1: necrophilia is uh, regular necrophilia. Mm. And this is uh, I like to think of this as the scavenger approach. Uh, entitling the use of uh, entailing the use of an already dead body for sex, so yeah. um, you know, as we'll explore later, a lot of this happens to to line up with one's uh, job. You're in a job mm-hmm. where you're in close contact with dead bodies,
2: and the opportunity simply presents itself, yeah, yeah, and I, I suspect that that is probably the situation, referring back to the sexual uh, homicides and the necrophilia like sort of numbers. Mm-hmm. I suspect that this is a bit more common. Yeah, actually far more common. I think it's extremely rare to have somebody like a Jeffrey Dahmer type. Uh, and then the third one that they categorize, and this is 68% of, uh, of the people that they categorize as necrophiliacs, is necrophilic fantasy. So this is basically, uh, getting back to the pseudo-necrophilia, this mm-hmm. is the idea that it's a, it's a fantasy they have of having sex with a corpse, but they don't actually do it. Um and they sort of, Think that, and by they I mean the, the the researchers here think that these necrophiles often choose occupations that will put them in contact with corpses. So I don't know, working in a morgue or a hospital, mm-hmm. or maybe a grave digger. I don't know.
1: Yeah, uh, hospitals, graves. Uh, in some cases, uh, is, you know, we'll look at some of the stats uh, in a bit. I think like clerics and even soldiers come up. Uh, oh, is that uh, right? Basically, any kind of profession you can imagine in which
2: you would find
1: yourself in proximity to a dead body.
2: Mhm. And here's a couple numbers br- br- to break this down. 21% of the necrophiles wanted to be reunited with a dead partner. So this is the one that I was saying earlier that I can sort of not that I would uh, participate in this like mm-hmm. my wife died or something like that, but I can it, it I feel emotion for these people who are so saddened by the loss of their life partner that they Fantasize. They're not even actually mm-hmm. acting upon it. They're just fantasizing about being reunited with them. It reminds me of the
1: old Irish uh, ballad that uh, particularly Sinead O'Connor uh, did a version of this and also uh, Dead Can Dance did a fabulous version of this. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm stretched on your grave and will lie there forever. It's oh. about someone who's lost their beloved and they're just
2: lying on their grave. Yes. Uh, Yes, very maudlin, sounds quite in line with, yeah. with my experience with Irish folk songs. Yeah, uh, but it's that kind of attitude, and I think all of us can relate to it on some level. At least that level of sorrow, I yeah. think. Um, okay, 15% of them were just attracted to corpses, 12% had a power trip over this, right? So 12% of the people that they looked at saw that they – very much like how we think about, I, I think, sexual assault is that it's a power strategy more than it is a sexual uh, motivated crime.
1: You know, I can't help but uh, – particularly in the whole idea about being attracted to corpses, I can't mm-hmm. help but think of uh, individuals growing up in the age of uh, VHS, you know, mm-hmm. where You know, nowadays, if someone has access to the Internet, they can find just about any example of sexual activity they want. Sure. Uh, You know, if if appropriate supervision isn't there. But when I was growing up, like, the easiest way to to see, uh, you know, more kind of adult content mm-hmm. was through horror movies and science fiction movies, you know? Right. So, you know, you're not going to go to the video store and, and rent something, you know, from the adult section, but you can certainly rent Alien, you can rent, rent uh, Return of the Living Dead, which, of course, has uh, a naked zombie in it. So uh-huh. like I wonder to what ex you know that's an important time in one's sexual that development.
2: There's a there's a cultural zeitgeist around that that somewhat uh, maybe encourages such fantasies. I wonder. Yeah, like because yeah. I, I imagine there are a lot of people out there who have their
1: um, you know their their sexual development kind of crosses into this horror genre, and then and they're they just sort of burned their mind or yeah. various sexy
2: zombies, you know? like what Oh yeah, do? and that's been a trope for at least the last couple of years is the the whole zombie thing turned into a boom. I think there was a lot of like, let's make cash off of this by making the zombie, zombies sexy as <laughs> well. Yeah, I um, uh, so th- this makes me think of, you know, it's no surprise to the listeners, both Robert and I are big horror fans. I was on Bloody Disgusting. I think it was Bloody Disgusting, which is a, you know, horror fan website the mm-hmm. other day. And they had a list of, like, I think it was, like, the top ten scenes of necrophilia in horror movies, uh, you know, overall. And I was shocked that there were so many. And then as <laughs> I kind of went through it, I went, oh, some of these are actually, like, Tasteful movies, yeah. That uh, tasteful horror movies that had, you know, a scene that had to do with the, the character or the plot. It wasn't just thrown in there to be shocking or to, you know, garner, uh, you know. Cult status, I guess. Yeah, growing up, I remember. I'm oh, no, not growing up; this was more
1: like college. I remember hearing about Necromantic. I think is a German film. Okay, yeah, it's like kind of a video nasty uh, classification. Mm. You know, uh, banned a lot of places. Uh, I never saw it, but it was. Uh, it's, it's kind of. I think it's held up there as one of the earlier. Uh,
2: that might have been on the list. Films. I'm trying to remember some of them. I'm sure 120 Days of Sodom was on there, mm. um, but I, I've never seen that. Salo. Oh yeah, uh, and I believe. There's, I believe, there's necrophilia in that. Um, I, God, I don't remember. I, I
1: actually saw it in the last year for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, one of our coworkers owns it. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm gonna have fun guessing who that is later. <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting film in that it is highly controversial. But it's, it's, uh, it's artistically well made. It's, it's a work of troubling art. Yeah. Know? Like the, I mean, the director was stabbed to death uh shortly after it i came didn't out. know that yeah. really and it's uh it's a i ended up not watching it in full like i just
2: uh-huh. could not watch a lot of it but i never saw it but i remember when i was in college i had a girlfriend who was in a, f- a film class mm-hmm. and they had assigned Salo as something that they had to watch for class and she was mortified um and just i don't i, I don't think she was able to make it through it it was you know, probably part of the class was was or part of the exercise was yeah. to see whether or not people could make it through that movie.
4: Hello, iHeart listener, we have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better, your TV is.
5: If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at
0: ibm.com slash code IBM. Let's create. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: Power trips come into it, as you as you would suspect, Um, and then you know, as we referred to earlier, the the homicidal necrophiliacs. That's again only twelve percent of the 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 cases they surveyed. So it's quite a small sliver. Mm -hmm. Twelve percent out of uh, what 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 did these guys? They had a one hundred and twenty two cases, and then with the other case, it was uh, out of two hundred and eleven sexual homicides. It was only eight percent that involved necrophilia okay uh so one last part to this uh study that they did they also developed a model to help understand what kind of events led to these you know psychological categorizations Mm -hmm. and this is what they found they found four um as you would imagine poor self-esteem largely due to a significant loss in their life um so that would probably bring us back to the you know the 21% who wanted to be reunited with their dead partners uh as you would expect, they're usually male, uh, and they're men who have a fear of being rejected by women. And so, as we discussed earlier, they desire a sex object that is incapable of rejecting them. Uh, the third is that they, some of them actually have like a fear of the dead. They're mm-hmm. scared of being around dead bodies. And this, like as a way of conquering that, I suppose, transform, it transforms that fear into a desire. Ah. Um, which I think is fairly common transition. Not necessarily with dead bodies. Yeah, I
1: think most people don't experience it on that level. No, but, uh, but
2: being afraid of something is also titillating. Yeah. You know, is why we watch horror movies. Probably. Exactly. Uh, and then the last one is just, you know, the, the fantasy of some... It sometimes begins after you've just had your first exposure to a corpse, whether that's, you know, as a child or an adult. Um, yeah, it's a shocking and and it, and, it, and it makes an impact on yeah, the psyche. Absolutely. Uh, so there is there's there's a there's another pretty widely cited study by a guy named, I believe this is pronounced, Anil Agrawal. Mm-hmm. Uh and he he published this in two thousand nine, and I I believe from what I saw it was that this was used to subsequently create a, a new DSM entry on necrophilia. And his his study was called A New Classification for Necrophilia. It was published in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine in 2009. And he came up with ten categories. Okay. We'll go through these. First up, role players, people
1: who get aroused from pretending their live partner is dead during sexual activity.
2: Okay. And then we have romantic necrophiliacs. These are... These are what we were discussing before: bereaved people who remain attached to their dead lover's body. So they're, they, you know, this is about sorrow.
1: Then uh, number three, necrophiliac fantasizers: people who fantasize about necrophilia but never
2: actually have sex with a corpse. And there's tactile necrophiliacs, people who are aroused by touching or just stroking a corpse without engaging in intercourse. Uh, I seem to remember that there was an extremely creepy episode of that TV show Millennium where there was a a guy who that was his particular thing was just like showing up to funerals and pretending to be a friend of the family just so he could touch the corpse.
1: Uh, number five is fetishistic necrophiliacs. These are people who remove objects or body parts even from a corpse for sexual purposes, but without engaging in intercourse.
2: Okay. And the as you as you can see, we're kind of this this list is getting worse as we're progressing. Uh, necromutilomaniacs; these are people. I know that sounds like a made up thing, but this is actually yeah, it like sounds a like a band for sure. <clears throat> people who derive pleasure from mutilating a corpse while masturbating, but not engaging in, in intercourse. Okay.
1: Number seven: opportunistic necrophiliacs. These are people who normally have no interest in necrophilia,
2: but they if they have the opportunity they're going to take it. So uh, yeah, I mean I don't I'm having a really hard time imagining the scenario where this would happen, but mm-hmm. I guess when you're left alone with a dead body for some reason and I mm, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're maybe you're performing an autopsy or something. I'm not sure. Uh regular necrophiliacs, that's people who preferably you know, just want to have sex with the dead. So, kind of back to that other model that we talked about yeah. before. Is like that, they
1: would even probably tell you, "Look, I'm not one of those exciting kind of necrophiles. I'm just yeah. old school necrophile." Yeah. Uh,
2: and they're again, they're not killing people, right? right? Let's be clear about that. That's the next one. Yeah. Number nine is homicidal necrophiliacs, who we've discussed already. People who want it, who want to commit murder in order to have sex with the dead. And then there is the tenth one, which is exclusive necrophiliacs. People who have an exclusive interest in sex with the dead and cannot perform at all for living partners. Now, this is what I, I think they categorized Jeffrey Dahmer as, that mm-hmm. like in his case, this was the only way that he could uh perform have any kind of sexual gratification and subsequently led to him both being a homicidal necrophiliac and an exclusive necrophiliac. Yeah. Now, I have some other stats here just to roll through from that Rossman and
1: Resnick paper, uh, just to give you a little more idea about who necrophiles are and uh, and why they do what they do. Sex, 92% in that study were male.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I found one rare female case was cited, uh, and I didn't have the time to be able to look up the, the case study on this, but her name was Karen Greenlee. Mm-hmm. So apparently she's a well-known female necrophiliac.
1: Okay. The mean age was 34, which makes sense. You know, you need to be young enough to get around and not have anything tying you down. But also your sexual uh, appetite needs to have had time to reach this point, right?
2: Right. And also probably you you would need to be, you know, as we know about like uh, them taking employment in situations that put them near dead bodies, you would need to be of age in order to kind of have a job like that.
1: Um, next up, IQ, and this is really interesting because there is there has long been and still kind of remains a stereotype of the necrophiles being essentially uh, you know mentally deficient that they're you know almost like a, the example of a stupid reptile right. just engaging with this because they don't know any more better. But um, in uh, in Rossman and Resnick's uh, uh, paper, they point out that all um, of the individuals that they profiled had IQs above 80, and 69% had IQs above 100. And uh, just to put that in you know, frame of reference, normal to average intelligence is 90 to 109. So these, uh, for the most part, we're not dealing with, uh, with unintelligent individuals. Right, this isn't, average intelligence.
2: this isn't uh, technically like a, a disability, a mental disability. Right. This is deviant behavior.
1: Yeah, and among true necrophiles... had IQs above 100. Hmm. Um, 64% of the cases, there was a prior history of of sadistic acts. Uh, Sexual orientation was uh, pretty much comparable to the general population. 79% heterosexual, 13% bisexual, 9% homosexual. not really surprising. Um, Underlying mental problems. This is interesting because this also gets into the idea that not only this preconceived notion that necrophiles are all going to be both mentally deficient and crazy. Yeah only seventeen percent were psychotic, eleven percent among true necrophiles. fifty percent had personality disorders fifty five percent had unusual belief systems though seventy percent seventy three percent of pseudo necrophiles did okay, which you know makes sense if you're fantasizing about sex with the dead, you probably have uh you know a different worldview from your average
2: uh Yeah, citizen. yeah, that's fair. 80% of those pseudo-necrophiles consumed alcohol mm-hmm. compared to 44% of true necrophiles. That's interesting. So I guess that's just, I wonder what they mean by that, if it's like a, a alcoholism or just a, you know, they they didn't they did they didn't imbibe at all.
1: It kind of, I guess I kind of think of it in terms of, you know, I'm going to need a drink for this. Um so, maybe like okay. the true necrophiles, you actually don't see as much alcohol consumption because it is like they are, they're kind of a, enough in the necrophilia camp that there's no need for liquid courage. Yeah. Whereas if it's just your fantasy, then maybe it's, the kind of thing that you have to decompress to
2: get down to the point where you're fantasizing about it, you know? Mm. Well, and then uh, 57% of uh, necrophiles were found to be in an employed profession that gave them access to dead bodies. We've got a list here, hospital orderlies, morgue attendants, cemetery employees, funeral parlor workers, and as you said earlier, clerics and soldiers. Uh, I found two other studies that I, I feel like Need to be mentioned, but I'm a little dubious of, uh, the reporting here. Uh, and I'd like to see some more research. Or maybe, uh, if anybody out there has experience with this kind of research, uh, or psychological experience, maybe they can tell us what they think. But, uh, these two studies basically connected the symptoms of necrophilia to both autism and Asperger's syndrome. Both these studies came out in 2011. And basically, it seemed like their conclusions were drawn from the fact that the there was a similar lack of empathy between uh, those with Asperger's and those who uh, were interested in necrophilia. Uh, that was about it. Um, one of them, one of these studies said that they, they uh, suggested something called autistic psychopathy led to experimentation with chemistry, poisons and killing, which subsequently they kind of tied into necrophilia. Uh, and these studies were, uh, the first one is called Necrophilia and Autistic Psychopathy, and the other one is Necrophilia and Serial Killers. Is there evidence for Asperger's Syndrome? Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, this is published research. I wanted to mention it, but I'm also a little wary of making a connection between these two different kind of mental states just based on the lack of empathy.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, there are only two studies, and it's such a a hotbed Um Topic that mm-hmm. I would uh, yeah I, I I would hate to spend too much time on it but you know hey if we see more uh, more papers come out um, you know maybe we'll come back to it. Now another interesting thing about uh, necrophilia is when you get into the legal issues involved mm-hmm. here because uh, of course corpses are not really people right so these are crimes that often fall through the cracks unless there's a specific necrophilia law on the books and without such a law in place it often uh, proves difficult to prosecute uh necrophiles
2: yeah and so this is you know something that i guess i'd never thought about and sort of assumed would be on the books but i, uh, I guess obviously it's it so makes, rare yeah you know? exactly but there was a case uh, you know kind of one of the leading cases was in wisconsin in 2006 uh it turned out there was a case where three men were caught while they were trying to exhume a dead woman for sex uh the men admitted to it, but uh, another reason they know is that they brought a box of condoms.
1: I remember this. I think I
2: blogged about this. You did. That's where I read about it. (laughs) Uh, It was, you were the source for this one for me. Uh, But so uh, what ended up happening was technically their lawyers argued there was no crime committed because there was no law on the books that said that it was against the law. So this prompted Wisconsin Supreme court two years later in 2008 to finally decide on a law that forbid copulating with the deceased Hmm. so that's one example I'm sure there are many other examples but it's one of those things where I guess like until it actually happens and they need to prosecute, they don't put it on the books Yeah.
1: are you going to be the weird politician who brings up the importance of necrophilia laws when there's no apparent need (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's going to kill your presidential aspects. Incidentally, that blog post was one of the first ones I did for How Stuff Works. Is that right? Right after we started the blogs, and and it was like immediately they had to hide it because they were like, I don't know, there are a lot
2: of eyes on the blog. Post. <laughs> you know, let's not have this be one of the top posts. Oh, uh, that's too bad. I liked it. Well, uh, one of the other things that came out of this uh, when I was looking at the research here is uh, specifically about the legality is. Many of the families who are involved with incidents like this where a family member's corpse is a victim of necrophilia, they have a problem with it because they sort of psychologically think of the corpse as being their property, right? So like as you were saying before, yes, it's not technically a living human being some people would probably argue i wouldn't that this is a victimless crime right but uh it, it's not in that that the family members see this as being their loved one and technically property even though it's not a living person
1: yeah it it kind of comes down to just what a so, so what a complicated area it occupies in our in our understanding of of our life and our our biological life even because it's mm-hmm. it's that it's our loved
2: one but it's not our loved one. It's a, it's a person, but it's not really a person still. Yeah. And I mean, like I said at the beginning, too, you know, this is considered to be the ultimate transgression in, in our culture, one of them. Uh, and therefore, it's something that we both have a hard time talking about in sort of empirical terms like we're trying to do today Or in legal terms, and then at the same time, it's so sensationalized that we can't seem to stop talking about it whenever it comes up, right? I'm sure if you Googled Wisconsin necrophilia, there's probably 200 newspaper articles out there from 2006 when this happened. You know, everybody was covering it that week. Yeah, and then yet when you start thinking about
1: it, it's like if you have a deranged individual and if they were to you know put the question to you hey mm-hmm. i'm going to do one of two things this weekend what should i do should i dig up a corpse and copulate with it or should i kill somebody right you know? or should i even just assault somebody like ob- obviously you're going to pick the corpse one because it it is a in a sense it's a victimless crime
2: yeah of course I, it's not. I, I, I would probably uh, you know call the police well yes that's the correct <laughs> that's the correct answer you know even if it's I'm a covering good myself legally here no matter how good of a friend
1: I always, when I think about this topic now, I always come back to, uh, Cormac McCarthy's 1973 novel, Child of God, uh, where the central character, Lester Ballard, uh, is, is a necrophile. Okay. I and haven't read that. It's, it's exceedingly good. I, it's one of those books I've, I, I keep coming back to, um, because it's, this character's a very dark character, but mm-hmm. you're so close to him in the book, you do sympathize with his, with, with his, uh, his psyche to a, a large extent. It's, it's so, So very well presented.
2: I think in, I I was trying to think of fictional examples for this episode. The only one I can remember is, do you remember that Marquis de Sade movie that had Jeffrey Rush playing the Marquis de Sade? I remember when it came out, but I've never seen it in full. There's, I believe, a scene in that in which Joaquin Phoenix Engages in necrophilia with Kate Winslet's corpse, huh. um, and I think you know obviously because it's about the Marquis de Sade. There's a certain amount of uh, of um, bacchanalia to the whole thing, right? right? Um, but it's but it's if I remember the plot correctly, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I believe it was because like he was grieving for her, and they were you know sort of in love. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I, sh- I should maybe see it at some point. I- I've read. Uh... I don't remember it being bad. Yeah. I've read the Sad. I find him to be a, a fascinating character.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. I think he's interesting in small doses. I have 120 days of Sodom and I can only read like maybe like two or three pages oh, at yeah? a time.
1: I see I tried to read the whole thing. The problem with 120 days is that um, it's Basically incomplete, and so the further you get into the book, it eventually breaks down into just an outline of what he intended to finish.
2: Yeah, I think they were like originally published pamphlets, is that right? Like a series of pamphlets? I think this, I think it's the one that
1: he, he secretly wrote in a prison cell, so it was, um, it was, it was hidden away for a while. Okay. Okay. But yeah, never officially Finished, so it's just in terms. Of, and not only is the content often difficult to read, but it becomes increasingly unreadable as a mm-hmm. work
2: because it's just incomplete. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's mine. Marquis de Saad and and you've got Cormac McCarthy, two of the literary greats. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great
1: book. Um, James Franco made a movie version. Oh yeah, which I've heard good things about. I'll probably n- never see it just because uh, it's it's a, a book I love so much. I have such a crystal. Yeah, you digit- don't want it to kind know? of
2: mar your imaginary
1: yeah but I hear good things so you know maybe our you know listeners out there who aren't as into uh, yeah, into reading reading want to just you know see a film, maybe check it out. If it's uh, true to the book, then it'll it'll do it does a good job. So there you have it, one from the vaults, one we're really proud of and one that we thought, uh, everyone wouldn't, would either not mind listening to a second time or, you know, here's a chance to discover it for the first time if you're a newer listener.
2: Yeah, and if you've got some thoughts that you want to share with us now about necrophilia and what you've learned in this episode, uh, don't forget to write us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
3: on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.
4: It'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here and it's transparent.